This is Prayer Room Companion, episode 69, recorded September 14th, 2011. It takes a village of virtue. <laughs> Welcome to this week in Prayer Room Companion. I am Chris Bergwald. And I'm Father Andrew Dickinson. Um, and Father Fall is here. It okay. is. Obligatory weather commentary now. Um, yeah. It's Make to weather cop happen now. <laughs> um, it's supposed to get down to freezing in Sioux Falls tonight. Seriously? Yeah. I didn't. Freeze warning. Uh, when, I'd when have you, to wear me a sweatshirt when I go running. When you have a, uh, uh, a garden, that's important stuff. So we have a couple of little gardens. So my... The tomatoes all done, or do you still have those? Oh, they're yeah, our produce crop this year is. Yeah. There are still some, definitely some on the vine, so we'll see what happens tomorrow after tonight. Yeah, Father, when you wake up at uh, five tomorrow morning, it's going to be thirty-two, supposedly. So, yeah. So anyway, uh, um, and now uh, obligatory. How's life comment? How are things at Brookings, Father? SDSU going well? Things are very well. Uh, as I like to say, it's now that we're in the third week of the semester, we've landed, and now we're able to run. You know, you when you got to when you're jumping out of a building to run or jumping out of a plane to run, you got to make sure you stick the landing, and then you can start running. It's no. kind of hard to run before you land. And actually, yeah. they proved that on MythBusters. <laughs> what? They proved that on MythBusters. How so? Well, they had a show where they talked about hit the ground running, and so they try they 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 tried it differently to see whether like if you're suspended in the air and you're running in midair and then they dropped you on the ground, would you run faster? And if you started at a standstill and just ran, and uh, now my maybe it was their their lack of coordination, uh, but they ran faster just starting from a standing stop than uh, being dropped from the air with their feet running. So as you said, nail the landing and then go. And then go. Very good. So, Father and I uh, actually we uh, we arrived at a topic uh, sometime in advance uh, this this week, Father. Father, yeah, right. That's a good thing, right? It is. It is. Yeah. It is, yeah. So, um, <laughs> and that topic is actually. It's, it, I don't know. I don't. Frankly, we'll figure out what to call the topic as we go, maybe. But um, uh, it was. Today's episode is prompted by a blog post written by Rod Dreher, who is uh, he's uh, Orthodox with a capital O, um, an Orthodox Christian, um, but not for emphasis. Not for emphasis, exactly. Um, uh, unfortunately, Rod used to be Catholic. He converted from evangelicalism to Catholicism, um, and uh, unfortunately, one of those situations where just his his disgust at the <laughs> At the uh, clergy sex abuse scandal um, led him elsewhere uh, to another church. So it is what it is. Uh, but he's still he, he's one of my favorite commenters, um, and he wrote he has a blog at the website for a magazine called The American Conservative, um, and the post is called "The Soft Barbarism of Young America." The soft barbarism of young America. In case anybody wants to Google that, Dreher is D R E H E R. And what Rod is, uh, his his own post was was prompted by a column um, in the New York Times by one of the Times regular columnists, David Brooks. 
Um, and David Brooks is <laughs> responding to uh, to a new book by a sociologist named Christian Smith. Um, Father and I were talking a little about Christian Smith before we went on the air. I, I heard of him several years ago uh, when he was working um, teaching and, and doing research at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And he came out, uh, he, he and some colleagues did a, a nationwide, a massive study of the religious lives and practices of American teenagers. And so this would have been um, the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and, and he wrote a book, the, the book on the findings was called Soul Searching. Um, and then he wrote up a follow-up a few years later in which he and and uh, some of his fellow scholars went back and re-interviewed the teens who were now in their early 20s and uh, and the, the the fruit of that research was published in a book called souls in transition and then uh, more recently just in the last month or so I think um, he wrote a book um, called Lost in Transition, which is more, not so much where his previous two works, these two works that I mentioned um, were more sociological analysis. Now it's more of a common, his commentary, his, um, his in a, I don't know, I hate to say this, but opinion for like informed opinion about uh, the state of, of life among American young adults uh, lost in transition, and that book is is what prompted David Brooks to write his column, which prompted Rod Dreyer to write his column. Uh, Father, when I I shared this Dreyer's post with you, um, I've sort of given the background, the, the history, how we get there, and I can talk about Smith uh, maybe more if it comes up. But but what 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 struck you about Dreyer's column to begin with, or is there anything that you think I should talk more about with regard to Smith or Brooks? Well, I think. Uh, it's really Smith doing, I think, uh, I don't know if the, the, the right word would be analysis, um, but he's, he's described the state of things in previous books, just kind of giving a sociological report, you know, uh, in, in those previous books. Now he's kind of going for the an, uh, analysis, the impact. He's reported the facts, now he's analyzing what the facts mean in the present and the future. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. He, he does some of that in the, the prior two, but it's the, those findings are more strictly sociological. I'd say. I mean, he does some like there's this term that Dreyer refers to of Smith's, uh, which we'll explain maybe in a little bit. Moralistic therapeutic deism, MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a term that Smith and his colleagues coined to describe um, the form of religion in a sense that that they found most American teens actually practice. So, so that's where, you know, he does some an analysis, but this lost in transition uh, is, is maybe um, a deeper analysis or, or where, where it's a little bit, you know, ab abstracting in a sense from the sociological findings that they re he reported in the previous two books. Sounds good. Um, well, so the first thing that struck that, that drew my attention is precisely just who it's who, who it concerns. Okay, you know that it's concerning young adults in America, young America, concerns me in two ways. One, because I still I consider myself on the edge of being pushed out of that, so I can still consider myself a part of that group. Yep. You know, thirty-two years old, I'm still young America in a certain sense. Yep. And secondly, uh, or maybe so. Secondly, then would be. Um, then that's the future of America. Yep. If we want to look at, I mean, these are the people who are making decisions, you know, and even just in watching um, different things um, that go on um, 
in, in, in the world today, you know, we see them as already that lack of virtue. And now we're seeing how that lack of virtue uh, is going to impact even the ability to discuss things in a social way. And we'll talk about the impacts for society and having community and commonality and coming together in a little bit. Right. Uh, and then third, I work with young people. Yeah. yeah. And this is precisely the type of article that I love or the type of research I love. Um, you know, I, I've got a meeting with uh, university administration coming up in a couple weeks, you know, and what does the Newman Center offer them as a good neighbor to this secular university? Mm. And these are precisely things that we offer. Right. Absolutely. So, so, I, so going back to um, Smith a little bit, since he's it's his findings, which are the, the, the genesis of Brooks column and Dreyer's post, and I referred to this moralistic therapeutic deism, um, which I, I found when I uh, came across Smith and his works uh, se several years ago to be fascinating and very much in line with what a number of other scholars, um, in particular some Catholic theologians that I read, uh, with their own um, perspective on American culture. So moralistic therapeutic deism, just breaking down those terms and beginning with the end, deism uh, is is was a uh, was and is uh, a philosophy that particularly arose in the Enlightenment and that uh, some of the founding fathers of America held to, which said that there is a God, um, but he is sort of like the God of Aristotle. He's the first cause, the unmoved mover, uh, that that being uh, which may or may not be personal, um, that that set everything into, put everything into existence, keeps everything into existence, but this being has little, if any, concern about what happens within creation. So it's sort of like um, God got things started and he keeps them going, but he doesn't get involved in the lives or the uh, in the course uh, of lives of, of individuals or even of nations, or frankly, of, of anybody. Um, so in a sense, God doesn't care about us. Uh, he's not concerned with, with our lives, is what deism uh, holds to. Moralistic and therapeutic. So moralistic, um, the, the idea that religion is about what I do, about being good, fundamentally. And therapeutic is about you know, meeting my own emotional, psychological needs and so on. So putting this together, moralistic therapeutic deism. What, what Smith and, and his colleagues found is that... Um, American teens, and then I think it applies to, to most of us, frankly, um, whatever form of religion we, we claim, whether Catholic, Lutheran, um, Jewish, Muslim, Mormon, whatever, um, whatever we claim we are, in fact, most American teens, and again, I think most Americans, are in fact moralistic therapeutic deists. The way that, the way that Smith puts this, God exists. But he is the the divine butler, the cosmic therapist. So who's a butler? Well, he's the guy who's in the back room until you need him. And you ring the bell and he comes and he provides you with what you need. And then he goes back and he stays put, so to speak. Right. A therapist, out of sight, out of mind. Out of sight, out of mind. A therapist, he's there. A therapist is there when you need him to give you aid and comfort. And then, you know, you, you, you get your hour or whatever you need, and, and then you're done with them. That's how many American teens, um, Smith found, view God. Re even if whatever they're, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, whatever, they, the vast majority of American teens see God in that way. Uh, and that's sort of the, the input. And, and, and then all this other stuff is, is, is his findings about what that means. Um, 
for for well in in their lives and 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 in this in particular now in lost in transition he's looking at the fact that because they are mtdists they lack a vocabulary and a mental skill set the ability to discourse about moral questions let alone metaphysical questions uh is that a, would that at that end there father based on your reading of dreyer's column is that would that be what you what he seems to be after right that seems to be the basic the basic idea of it and then of course i'm drawing out the implications of it but precisely that moralistic therapeutic deism doesn't give them any sort of means of that sort of engagement or even a, a grounds for that sort of engagement. You have to have a ground on which to stand, if you will. You have to have a place in which you can engage one another. Um, but so, uh, so MTD, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism, has stripped that from there. Right. And, and so they can't, as, as Dreyer and uh, then, uh, sorry, Brooks and then Dreyer both lament, they, they can't talk intelligibly um, about, about how they determine what's right and wrong, how, how to act. There's one quote from Brooks's column that Dreyer cites. Um, the default position, which most of them come back to again and again, is that moral choices are just a matter of individual taste. It's personal, the respondents typically said. It's up to the individual. Who am I to say? Um, rejecting blind deference to authority, many of the young people have gone off to the other extreme. I would do what I thought made me happy or how I felt. And then this, this is in particular the line that really struck me. I have no other way of knowing what to do but how I internally feel. I have no other way of knowing what to do but how I internally feel. Father, your interaction with young um, adult Americans, uh, would you say that th that's true for many? I mean, not necessarily the Newman Center students. Maybe it is Newman Center students as well, but... Do you see that as being the, their their MO, so to speak? Very much so. And even just as a young American myself, to a certain extent, I, I see and experience that temptation within me, just as being a member and a product of our current culture. That's certain that uh, that mindset is certainly a part of me as well. Um, furthermore, I see how that mindset is deliberately taught um, in regards to the human things of this world. It's interesting because then we have that dichotomy, especially uh, for myself here at a uh, scientific engineering school, we have the dichotomy between the sciences, which are uh, absolute, full, complete, final, on one side. You, you can talk about them, you can disagree, you have all these full things. And then the other side, we have, you know, my personal feelings, experience of things. And so um, that's just, uh, it's, it's, it, it, I think to me it's very accurate to what reality is. Right. That, that, that's, that's how many young Americans think. I, I have no other way of knowing what to do about how I internally feel. And, and Smith and Brooks and Dreyer, are, they're, not really, they're not saying that young Americans are immoral and bad people. They're saying... Um, that in fact, they don't have they don't have the capacity, the ability to engage in these things, which are a genuine and necessary part of society. Exactly. And so we have to have these. And uh, you know, I remember the interesting about this quote: uh, the more that we dive into this reality, the more that we look at this personality and 
Dr. Bergel and I will get a chance to talk uh, in a few weeks uh, a bit more about this using a, a book that we're reading together. Yep. Um, but the uh, w when you do, when you no longer have an external authority telling you right or wrong, you reduce it to that internal experience. Then, for these people, their own passions become authoritarian. Their own passions become the dictator. You right. know, you become a slave right. to your own passions right. in that way, where they're not regulated by anything else. Um, and that, Saint Paul says something to that effect: that you know, we're enslaved by ourselves. Sin enslaves us. We're not necessarily talking about sin here, but we're talking about the fact that our our behavior becomes sub-rational, if not irrational. Uh, because it's right. not governed by reason, reason looking at the world, looking at myself, human nature, uh, to determine how to act, but just how I feel from, every, from one moment to moment. And that's it, from moment to moment, which is part of the problem. How I feel changes all my emotive state changes constantly. So, so not only is, is my criterion for action um, literally unreasonable, it's not connected to my reason, it's constantly changing because my emotional state is constantly changing. Right. Uh, and both Brooks and Dreyer also refer in this context to, uh, to the, uh, the British philosopher who, who also teaches at Notre Dame, has been there for many years, um, Alastair McIntyre, who, who talks about um, emotivism as being the, the dominant method, so to speak, by which we, we make decisions, uh, the dominant method by which most Western society, Western civilization today, um, quote-unquote, thinks about moral questions. Because there isn't any thinking. It's exactly what these, these um, young Americans are saying. Um, I have no other way of knowing what to do but how I internally feel. Right. And, and the, I think the, the other lie on that notion of that emotivism, as uh, Alistair McIntyre refers to it as, is that I think there's a myth that your feelings in some way are set or that your feelings are not influenced, that your feelings are in some way absolute. But your feelings are constantly being influenced by the things that you're exposed to, the choices you make, the guilt that you might bear according to your own conscience. Um, and the way that your conscience assails you, even when you convince yourself that what you're doing is right. And so all of these things are applying onto those feelings, but we blindly follow them as if, <laughs> in blind faith, like it's a flying spaghetti monster. Right, right. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we give almost absolute deference to the authority of our emotions. Um, you know, I, Yet those, but yet those emotions are not observable. They're not known what they're based on, you know. Uh, right. Today, eating a, a bag of Doritos made me feel fine about myself. You know, a month from now, uh, when I've eaten uh, a month's worth of bags of Doritos, I don't feel fine about myself, my self-image, my person. But because I don't feel good about myself, I eat two bags of Doritos because I want to punish myself for looking bad from having eaten all those Doritos. Absolutely. You know, the other thing I'm thinking that I'm just the uh, for anybody who is responsible in a, in a concrete and a real way for other people, emotivism mm -hmm. is so obviously wrong um, and 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 just doesn't work. You know, I think like I can see why um, college students 
would fall for this kind of thing or, or young adults. But just thinking of, of, of myself, uh, you know, as a husband and a father, how I feel, I mean, I could tell you the other day, <laughs> the other day I, I didn't get much sleep the night before and um, my kids were like, Dad, I don't like it when you're short-tempered. <laughs> I said, I know, you're right, you're right. But how I, I, was, I didn't feel patient. I didn't feel particularly loving that day because of my lack of sleep. Um, and so, according to emotivism, I should, my, my, it's fine that my actions correspond to that emotional state. But BS, I mean, I, I, I have responsibility. It's not just about me. I have responsibilities and duties to particular individuals, my wife and my children, um, that 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 require me to, frankly, ignore my emotions at times. Very much so. To do the right thing. To do the right. In thing. that sense. Exactly. Uh, quick question, Dr. Bergwald. Yes. What is this BS that you speak of? Are you talking about a Bachelor of Science degree? Um. <laughs> It's a family-friendly show. I, I can use the acronym, but not the full term, right? Isn't that, is that, is that wrong? Is that so wrong? Oh, you were swearing. I was swearing. Were you caught up in the emotion of the moment? I was. And see what happens <laughs> when you do that? St. Paul you know, talks about obscenities that not come from your mouth, and that's what happens when you let your emotions get the best of you. You say things you shouldn't. Yes, Father. Exactly. And so uh, I think... Uh, so you talk about that, and so what we do is we use those emotions, those feelings, to give us some sort of a sense of rights, you know, rights over others in that way. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of right in the reality of that, and so it can become, a, uh, it can become that means of uh, a, a, that empowerment over the other person. And so, exactly, exactly. So, uh, and so along those lines, um, the idea of responsibilities to other people. Um, one of the one of the other points that, that Brooks and Dreher both make in response to Smith's findings uh, is about um, the idea that the the dominant sort of uh, moral unit in American society used to be the group. Now it's the individual. Mm. Now it's the individual. Right. Um, and so with the individual, with the individualization, um, it becomes about me and my rights, uh, what's owed to me, but not, as I was just saying, about my responsibility to other. Whereas when it's a group, whether it's a family, a parish, whatever, you've got both. I have rights, but I also have responsibilities. But when, it's, when we have this atomization where it's just about the individual, you lose that sense of responsibility to others. Well, which is always... Uh... The interplay between rights and responsibilities, I think, is just uh, a marvelous and a beautiful thing to consider and a, and a wonderful way to phrase it. Um, you know, when, when I learned uh, church law, canon law, it's about rights and responsibilities. You have certain rights as a baptized Catholic, you have responsibilities. You have rights as a priest, you have responsibilities. You have rights yep. as a parish, you have responsibilities. One of the interesting things about United States law and the U.S. Constitution is it's almost entirely about rights. Right. Correct. Pun intended. 
Yeah, that's that's, and I, you know, there are historical reasons for that. I mean, the, the nature of our uh, the, our existence as we arose in resp- out of a rebellion, a revolution against um, the the, uh, the 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 British monarchy. So uh, the emphasis was from. But the, it was against the, unjust responsibilities they were putting upon us. Right. And since, they, they, but and against that, what we did is we, and maybe in somewhat. Well, this is getting off totally off top this topic in a way. Uh, and I'm speaking maybe without thinking here, ready, fire, aim. Uh, but, you know, it almost seems like it was kind of that. And maybe I don't want to say this. Okay, I don't want to say this. Okay. So I'm not going to say it. All right. But it's real interesting to see how, you know, the makeup of American society has been about my rights, the individual, the person, and how that then uh, uh, now finding it's coming into a splintering, various things are splintering. One could almost wonder, is this something that's more a part of American roots and an imbalance there at the beginning? Right. And that's, you know, there's, a, just to Catholics, Catholic, there are Catholics on, bo- on both sides of that debate. Um, so it's certainly an interesting debate to be had. But regardless, I think that, that uh, there will be agreement of the points that we're making here, riffing off of Dreyer, Brooks, and Smith, um, and and getting back to the whole idea of the the group as the the, the fundamental moral unit, um, a, a point that that McIntyre uh, also makes, and the others have made too, is it's in the group that we learn those habits, those practices, which are the virtues. Um, you know, when it's just me on my like, how do I? Where do I learn? How do how do I how do I know? Take sort of take on whatever it means to think properly uh, and act properly. It's in the group that that happens. Even before we're able, you know. So my kids are young, seven and under, and and they can't, you know, wax eloquently in terms of moral discourses. But what they are able to do, hopefully, is that we and 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 the families that uh, that that we are friends with uh, through their children. The, the people that we sum- surround our children with, hopefully our kids are sort of absorbing sort of by osmosis um, how to think and act uh, in, a, in a proper, moral, th- truly Christian and Catholic manner. Right. And now just to put through on that word of caution to your statement, which I do agree with, but that caveat, of course, is are you saying it takes a village to raise a child? You seek at non, yes and no. It takes a virtuous community. It takes a community that's committed to these things to raise and encourage children in that sort of way. And, and you, even, I think, came to that at the end where you say, as a parent, you know, I'm choosing which communities my child enters into. Absolutely. You know? yeah. um, and so, uh, so, so that, that always has to be that caveat or that spoken reality. I think this goes back to... Uh, you know, Aristotle and his concept of friendship, at least we can make a, an allegory going back to that, you know, that uh, there's different sorts of friendships, there's different sorts of communities, the communities where we get together because we all like fantasy football. Well, that's maybe not the community or the sole criteria of the community that you want to raise your child in or be formed by things in. Right, right. So you put your right. I think the reason the reason I was talking about the in a sense the village is that we we as uh, we just don't have the 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 option, frankly, of of, and I don't know if I would even agree that it would be a good thing to do to try to completely isolate our kids from human contact with anybody but us. So the question right. is who who are the other. Uh, 
uh, peers and adults that we want to surround our kids with. So choosing the village, as you put it, um, that we're going to, to uh, put them with. So, so Father, anything else from uh, Dreyer's post or, or, or any of these other things that, that are the background that, that struck you? Um, well, I think uh, the final thing would be uh, his closing comments then about, um, you know, uh, as we're being misled by this niceness, um, you know, we need to figure out what's, what's the answer to that. And the answer to that, I think, is uh, good, solid communities, groups, families. Virtue can be embodied and then shown forth to those who aren't living it. Um, and I really think that while... You know, in some ways, you could look at this sort of article and see a gloom and doom, yeah. um, glass three quarters empty, uh, or more glass empty. You know that this type of civilization that will tear itself apart. At the same time, I think we can look and see there are schools and places of virtue and goodness, and some of the things I see in a college campus, and I see how my students then serve as that light to others on campus. And some people hate the light, but some people are drawn to it and desire to be formed by it. And there's something early on, and I, and I can't, I can't remember now exactly how you phrased it, but what what came to my mind was Catholic culture. Um, it, it's it's about with authentic communities of virtue and so on. Um, it's about building or rebuilding an authentic, deeply Catholic culture. In other words, it's not just enough to know um, right and wrong, and and know the criteria for judging right and wrong, but it's also about living that out in in a uh, in a community, in a concrete way, in real life. Um, it's it's, it's so that, that's part of where I've been going the last few years. Uh, of course, it, it is about knowing, you know, having the, the re- proper intellectual understanding, but it, but that's incomplete in and of itself. It's insufficient. We we have to go from from knowing into action from knowing to doing, um, being, being well, at the root of it all. As, I, as I've enjoyed saying the past couple years, and uh, I just saw it in a different article on a different topic this morning, you know, orthodoxy is not enough. Right. It's simply, you know, uh, as it says in the letter of James, even demons believe and tremble, and rightly so, but they do not have love. Right. They don't have orthodoxy and orthopraxy. As some put it, right. right belief and right action. So, so it's a very interesting article. I mean, Father and I just touched on a number of the points, but it's, I think some of you might be interested in reading the whole article as it is, and then doing some of that further background reading, maybe with Brooks's column, and even some of Smith's books. So, anyway, any any final thoughts, Father? Not today. Okay. Uh, we will leave it with that, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Prairie Rome Companion.